John chapter 1. Verse 43. The next day he, that is Jesus, purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Father, your word is so cool. And I thank you that we get to study it together this morning. I would ask one thing of your, of your spirit today, that you would keep us alert and awake. And I pray that no one will miss anything of what you have to teach us today, of what you have to say to us. Because I believe, Lord, that this message penetrates to every single heart. All of our hearts. I believe, Father, that both the long-time believer and the complete non-believer and the person somewhere in between, Lord, Your Word here, it pierces to the heart. May we hear it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Does God see what's going on in the world? With all the terrorism, all the violence, the increase of lawlessness that Jesus said would make most people's love grow cold, we look around this planet and that question is often asked, does God see what's going on? A lot of times it's asked by a critic of Christianity who would say, where's your God? You know, in all this, in all this happening, if there's really a God, how can he allow these types of things to go on? Does God see? Did he see the terror attack in Paris this week or was he just out of town that day? Did he see the firebombing in Germany as a response of another uh, newspaper reprinting the same uh, comics of Mohammed that were printed by the place that got shot up? Where was God? Does he see ISIS on the move? Does he see Al-Qaeda stronger now than they have been? Does he see the dangers and the threats and the terror? But more personally, does he see what's going on in your life? Does he know what you're struggling with? Is he aware of it at all? Two people come to mind for me that are highly qualified to answer that question. One of them was an Egyptian handmaiden by the name of Hagar. You may recall the story, God promised Abram, you're going to have a son. And Abraham tells Sarah, well actually Sarah overheard the promise and bust out laughing. Therefore, ultimately they would name him Isaac, laughing boy. That's what his name means, laughter. And so Sarah laughed about it, and Abraham must have had a good laugh about it. And the two of them together probably guffawed a few times. And said, this is, this is a promise from God. But then they did what I think a lot of people do. You get an idea from the Lord and then you reinterpret it because the way He says it is impossible. Well, it can't possibly mean what He said, so I must change it to, to make some human sense. And so Sarah said to Abraham, why don't you sleep with Hagar? And Abraham, being the dutiful husband... <laughs> Well, she told me to. (laughs) What was I to do? Just trying to obey my wife and show her respect and love. So he sleeps with Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant, gives birth to Ishmael. 
God makes it clear, that was not my plan. And that is not my promise. Meanwhile, you now have Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar the handmaiden, raising Ishmael, the son of the handmaiden and the master of the house. How do you think Sarah's dealing with this? Not good. And ultimately, Sarah drives Hagar out. Get out of here. I don't want to see your face or your child. And off Hagar goes into the wilderness. She sets Isaac by a tree. She sits down a ways away because she doesn't want to watch her son die. And she's going to die herself. She's given up. The promise became a problem which ultimately ended up in a parting. And suddenly there in the wilderness of all places was the presence of God. He shows up. It's the first time, by the way, in the Bible, the angel of the Lord, the Malach Yahweh, appears. Who we have talked about many times, a pre-incarnate revelation of God in Jesus. Shows up in the wilderness. Begins to talk to Hagar. Says, it's going to be alright. I'm going to take care of you. I will bless your son. Even though he was a son of a mess, I'm going to bless him anyway. Go back to Abraham and Sarah. And Hagar, in Genesis 16.13, says, You are El Roy. Which means, the God who sees. She could not have imagined that out there, in the midst of her misery, her pain, and her lostness, that God would find her. When He does, she says, You're the God who sees. Hagar, does God see what's going on in your life? Absolutely. The well there is called Bir Lahoi Roy. The, the well of the God who sees. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Genesis 16.14 tells us. An amazing story. Jesus picks Hagar out in the wilderness on the face of the planet. Because He saw her there. And when He saw her, then she saw Him. Does He see what's going on in your life today? You can ask Hagar, you could also ask a Jew named Nathaniel. Nathaniel. In a far less tragic scenario, but every bit as personal as Hagar's story is Nathaniel's story. Look at verse 45. We'll pick it up there. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Why does he call him the son of Joseph? Because at that point... Though Philip is believing that perhaps Jesus is Messiah, he just calls him by his earthly father's name because he doesn't realize what he will learn later on. We talked about Wednesday night. In John 14, Philip will say, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus says, haven't we been together long enough? He who has seen me has seen the Father. But at this point, Philip doesn't know. He just He's just thinking Messiah. He's thinking ruler. He's thinking a king for Israel. He doesn't know the full ramifications of that. And so he says, this Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I love the question. I, I, don't, I don't believe he's slamming Nazareth. I don't believe he's saying that Nazareth is such a bad place. It's just insignificant. How in the world could something as glorious, someone as glorious as Messiah come from Nazareth? Now, in the 1860s, Mark Twain wrote a really interesting little travel journal. It's called The Innocence Abroad. And he traveled throughout Europe. He went throughout the Middle East and and documents his travels through the land of Israel. And we've actually uh, talked about this a little bit before. What he saw in the land, how desolate, how completely wiped out, how barren it was. That they walked for days and didn't see anybody. And for the most part, Mark Twain's description of Israel is negative. Except for Nazareth. In his book... Written in 1869, he writes this, Nazareth is wonderfully interesting. Because the town has an air about it of being precisely as Jesus left it. And one finds himself saying all the time, The boy Jesus has stood in this doorway, has played in that street, has touched these stones with his hands, has rambled over these chalky hills. And so Mark Twain was like, this is cool. And it was the one spot in all of the land of Israel that impressed him. Why? Because Jesus put it on the map. Because before Jesus, Nazareth was an unknown. 
It was there, but completely unknown. Before Christ, it does not exist in the historical record, or didn't for a long time, as far as we understood. There was that single obscure Hebrew prophecy, something about a Nazarene. But other than that, nothing. Josephus, who talked about, who wrote about Jesus, said nothing of Nazareth. Philo never mentioned Nazareth. The early rabbinical writings, none of them talked about this city in the Galilee called Nazareth. And even after Jesus, the existence of Nazareth, except for New Testament scripture, where it's mentioned a number of times, except for right here, the existence of Nazareth was hard to pin down, hard to prove. And of course, that's why there have been so many critics over the years who have decried its authenticity. There's not even a Nazareth. He's called Jesus of Nazareth, but there is no Nazareth. Psalm 85 verse 11 says, Truth springs from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. It's a favorite verse of mine to quote. I quote it many times when we're in the land of Israel. Truth springs from the earth. And it is remarkable how God has begun to reveal things there in Israel and to support and prove the scriptures, which archaeology always does. History always eventually catches up with the Bible. In this case, what the New Testament had maintained all along. Nazareth. In 1962, a Hebrew inscription was excavated at Caesarea Maritima. That's down Caesarea by the sea. It's the place where the Apostle Paul was uh, in chains and bound and went before uh, Uncle Festus. This inscription found there was not found in Nazareth, found in Caesarea, was a Hebrew inscription that dated back to 135 A.D. and is absolutely consistent with the historical record of what was taking place at that time. The Hebrew inscription names Nazareth among the cities in the Galilee to which the 24 priestly divisions fled when Roman Emperor Hadrian paganized Jerusalem in 135. If you know your history, and most of you Bible students do, that in A.D. 70, Jerusalem fell, it was wiped out, the Jews were driven out. But there were a number that that remained. And long about the early 130s, the Maccabee brothers came along and they started a revolt and there was a great uprising, the Bar Kokhba revolt. And in that revolt, finally, Hadrian and the Romans put down the Jewish people once and for all and he paganized Jerusalem. And at that time, the priests fled for their lives up into the Galilee and Nazareth, as I said, is named in the inscription. Hadrian renamed Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina. He renamed it that because his clan name was Aelius. So Aelia Capitolina to honor his own clan name. And then he renamed all of the land of Judah and Samaria. Renamed it Palestina. You all know Philistine land. To add insult to injury to the Jews. Nazareth is named. In the last decade... We've seen unearthed indisputable archaeological evidence of a village in that, on that ridge in the Galilee of Nazareth. Vineyards, farms, wine presses, pottery shards, all that date back to people living there in a village setting from about the 2nd century B.C. through the 4th century A.D., covering, spanning before and after the time of Jesus. Nazareth has been supported, has been proven. But when Nathaniel asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth, the reason he asked the question is nothing had. It wasn't known for anything. It was just a settlement, just a village, just a township. Insignificant and irrelevant, especially to the Jewish people. I mean, come on, Nathaniel might say, Messiah can't come from Nazareth. Jerusalem, yes, if you said we found him in Zion, I'd say, all right. Good chance he's Messiah, or, or maybe even out of Hebron, but not Nazareth. Matthew 2.23 says that Joseph and Mary and Jesus, after their flight to Egypt to escape from Herod, moved up to a city called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And people have struggled with that one because you look back through the Hebrew prophets, which we have, and it's very difficult to find where he shall be called a Nazarene. One place. It's an obscure prophetic reference. Some of you are familiar with it. Isaiah 11, verse 1, which reads, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that's it. 
a branch, a netzer. From the root word Natsar, which is where Nazareth gets its name. Natsar means watchtower. Netzer means branch. So it's branch, watchtower, and that watchtower branch over the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Megiddo today, was Nazareth. He will branch out. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. By the way, that spirit is his spirit. And so Messiah would come with the spirit of the Lord because Messiah is the Lord. And he would come and live in Nazareth. The greatest acclaim that Nazareth would ever have in history is because Jesus lived there. It's why we know the name. It's why it is known worldwide and has been for 2,000 years. Jesus put it on the map. But it was the death of Jesus on the cross that really sealed Nazareth. John 19.19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Pilate was fulfilling scripture and didn't even know it. But what's ironic here is Nathaniel comes along and he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? We know more about Nazareth than we know about Nathaniel. Nazareth has more fame and more recognition than Nathaniel does today. We see him right here in this little vignette. We see him one more time. Don't actually even see him. We just hear him named. He's with Peter and the boys in John 21 when they go fishing. That's it. Now there are those scholars who come along and they say, well, but, but perhaps Nathaniel is his first name and his last name is Bartholomew. Bartholomew, which is Bar, son of Tholomew, the son of Tholomew. So Nathaniel, perhaps he's Bartholomew, who's one of the apostles. So we do know something about him. What do we know about Bartholomew? We know he was one of the apostles. And that's it. We get nothing on him. No stories, no vignettes, no tales, no, no conversations. He's, he's in there among the twelve. We don't know anything about him. So again, when Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth, even if he is Bartholomew, was Bartholomew, which we don't know, we could ask this question, what good ever came out of Nathaniel? You know what the answer is to that? Jesus saw him. Jesus saw him. And he saw the Lord. Look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Now, I don't think Nathanael was so proud of his integrity. You know, I don't think what we're seeing here is Nathanael saying, Yeah, I am an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He picked up on that. How'd you know? Pretty proud of myself. That's not where it's coming from. It's just Jesus is saying something about Nathaniel, something that triggers Nathaniel to think, wait a minute, you know something here. How, how do you know me? He says. <laughs> and Jesus answered and said to him, and I love this, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answers him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And I would say, you are easy to impress. <laughs> he saw you under a fig tree, and now you believe. Is that all that it takes for Nathaniel? I mean, Nathaniel goes from what good thing can come out of Nazareth to, oh, I guess it's the hometown of the highest king. This son of Nazareth is now in Nathaniel's eyes the son of God. And Nathaniel's busting. Because of the one thing Jesus says, Nathaniel turns around and says, Yes, Messiah is among us. Where does he say that? I don't see that. He calls Jesus the son of God and the king of Israel. Keep your finger in John 1. Go back to the middle of your Bibles to the second psalm. Psalm 2. It's a short psalm, 12 verses, and it is, by all context, it is the psalm of Messiah. Listen to what David writes. Second psalm, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing, which is incredibly relevant to our day? 
Many of you have asked the same question. Why are the nations in an uproar? What is going on in this world? It's insane. It's crazy. Nation rising against nation. We've got Iran. We've got North Korea. We've got Syria. ISIS on the move. Al-Qaeda. Everybody's wanting to fight everybody. There's no peace. What's going on? Why are the nations doing this? Verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against His anointed one. Against His Messiah. Verse 3. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want to do what He wants us to do. We're going to do it our way. Thank you, Frank Sinatra. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And I've told you before, it's a laughter of incredulity. It's like, it's like a three-year-old coming up and challenging Russell Wilson to a game. Or, or better, Marshawn. I'm going to get on the line and challenge you, Marshawn. Let's go. What? Marshawn would laugh. And the Lord in heaven scoffs. Verse 5, He will speak to them in His anger, terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain, the King of heaven. That's exactly what uh, Nathaniel said, isn't it? Then he goes on and says in verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Oh, the son of God. That's also what Nathaniel said. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Do homage with trembling, or rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. The Messianic Psalm. So back in John chapter 1. Nathaniel, apparently a learned Jew to some degree because he blurts out, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. These are Messianic titles. And every Jew in the day would understand if you were talking about the king of Israel, you were talking about the coming Messiah. If you said something like Son of God, you were referring to this Messiah King who everybody was expecting to come. This is an amazing statement by Nathaniel. Why? (laughs) Because Jesus hadn't done anything yet. John chapter 2. That's when the first miracle happens at Cana in Galilee when He changes the water to wine. We'll talk about that Wednesday night. So... Why would someone jump out there like this and say, you are Messiah, when nothing major had happened, unless something major did just happen? Something's going on here between Nathaniel and Jesus. Okay, well what's so miraculous about seeing a dude chilling under a fig tree? (laughs) I have read over this hundreds of times in my life. And you know what? Honestly, it's kind of been a blip verse for me. A blip on the screen. A a transitional verse from chapter 1 into chapter 2. And you think, well, that's kind of weird, but I don't understand that. Just moving on. Psalm under a fig tree. Woo, big deal. Move on to the miracle. Water to wine. That's a cool one. And so we don't think about this. In fact, as I looked at this and as I thought about it, i got to tell you honestly, on the surface, it is an incident that is so lame, it's almost embarrassing. I read over this, and the thought is... He says, how do you know me? And Jesus could have said, from your mother's womb, I have seen you. I watched you as a little boy grow up. I've been aware. No, he says, no, when you're by the fig tree, I saw you. Oh, well, (laughs) that's amazing. (laughs) Hallelujah. Shut the Bible, go home. That is it. (laughs) What? I saw you by the tree. A fig tree. What's the deal? All the testimonies, all the teachings, all the events and incidents that are in the Gospel of John are here for a specific reason. John is directing us to the divinity of Jesus. And you will note this, and I shared before, seven miracles, specific miracles, are called out in the Gospel of John. All of them speak to the divinity, the deity of Christ, that He is God in the flesh. 
John is intentional with this. And to add this here, John's got to be doing something. This is not just the doddering notes of an old fool. These are, these are words of a story that John felt so important it made the cut in this Gospel record. I read this on Wednesday night. G. Campbell Morgan said, In this Gospel, only those crises in the life of the Lord which are closely related to His deity are recorded, such as the Incarnation... Note that. John doesn't talk about the birth of Christ. He goes to the Incarnation of Christ, the Word becoming flesh. As we talked about on Christmas Eve, John goes to conception. That's a God thing. John will talk about the crucifixion, another God thing, the resurrection, an issue of deity. And I would include in the list, Nat under the fig tree. John 1.18, John writes, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. God in the flesh, God among us, explains God to us. And that is Jesus. I think Nathaniel saw that. I think he saw something divine in Jesus. At a minimum, he recognized something supernatural is going on. So let's think about this. Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Where was Jesus staying? If you go back up a few verses, you can note this. You've got Philip and Andrew, and they're from a town called Bethsaida. Now, they were all uh, disciples of John the Baptist. So they were down around the region of Bethany beyond Jordan. That's down south uh, near Jerusalem. Jesus, from there, made his way up to the Galilee. He apparently hooked around the top of the Galilee because as you come up toward the northeastern shores of the Galilee, you come to Bethsaida. And that's Peter and Andrew's uh, hometown. He meets Andrew there. Andrew gets Peter. He meets Philip. Philip gets Nathaniel. Bethsaida. Perhaps Jesus, when this story took place, was in Bethsaida. Or, maybe he had continued on around to his base of operations, a little town on the northwestern shore of the Galilee called Capernaum. And Capernaum was Jesus' home base for ministry. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, explain that to us and talk about how he he branched out from Capernaum and did his work. Peter's mother-in-law was in Capernaum. They often stayed there in Capernaum. Okay, well, that's fascinating, Rick. (laughs) So he was either in Bethsaida or he was in Capernaum. Where was Nathanael from? John 21, verse 2 tells us he was from Cana, which was about four or five, perhaps six miles away from the Galilee. What are you saying, Rick? This is just my opinion. And I'm going to delve a little, I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I'm going to be a little bit in the field of surmise this morning. Doing a little guesswork to try and understand this. So I could be wrong about some of these things. Do your homework. Cana is inland from the sea, up the Arbel Pass, several miles of rugged, mountainous terrain away from either Bethsaida or Capernaum. And I think Nathaniel's fig tree was in Cana. That Nathaniel was under that fig tree, perhaps that morning or the day before, having his morning devotions, his quiet time. And Jesus saw him from Cana. And he didn't have Skype, and he wasn't FaceTiming, and no one shot him an Instagram. He was just there. If I'm right about this, it is the only time in the Gospels that we see the visual omnipresence of Jesus. What do you mean? I mean Jesus seeing something going on where He wasn't. Something so far away He could not possibly have seen it. But He saw it. We know Jesus heard people's thoughts, which is so cool. You know, if you're at a party with Jesus, careful what you're thinking about, because He knows. He's there. An argument, we're told in Luke uh, 9.46, started among the apostles as to which of them might be greatest. Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among you all, this one is the one who is great. The Bible doesn't say he overheard them arguing. It says he knew what they were thinking in their hearts. We have a great scene where Jesus is with the Pharisees. He read the Pharisees like a cheap novel. 
Matthew 12.24, when the Pharisees heard, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And knowing their thoughts, <laughs> Jesus said, Many kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. You ever been with someone like that? You think something and they give you an answer before you have said what you were thinking? My wife does that to me all the time. Drives me nuts. I know what's on your mind, but she knows because she's known me. For over 30 years we've been together. She's aware of, she knows my idiocies. She knows how I think. Jesus didn't know the Pharisees other than He was Jesus. And he read their thoughts. And there are so many examples of this. You know, Jesus at the house of Simon the Pharisee in Luke chapter 7. And, and this woman comes in, who is a sinful woman from town. And she starts washing his feet with her tears and, and drying them with her hair. And she's weeping over him. And Simon the Pharisee sits back in his easy chair and goes, in his mind, if this guy had any idea what kind of woman this is, he would not be letting her touch him right now. And Jesus goes, Hey Simon, I got a story for you. And starts talking about the love that this woman has shown because she is forgiven. And he calls Simon on the carpet. Jesus, we know, had the presence of mind to know what people were thinking. To hear thoughts. That's omnipresence. He also had that power in healing, by the way. A centurion came running up to him in Luke chapter 7 as well, the first part of the chapter. The centurion comes up and says, I've got, a, I've got a servant at home who's sick. And Jesus says, well, take me to him. centurion says, no, no, that's cool. I'm a military man. I know how this works. You know, I, I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes. I know how this works. You just say the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus goes, that's awesome. My, my paraphrase. He says, that is great faith. That's faith. And he's looking, I'm sure, and his Jewish disciples saying, faith. He trusts me. And he says to the centurion, go on home. Your servant's well. And the servant was healed. And Jesus never touched him. So no question that Jesus can do these things, did do these things. But to, to read this story, here Jesus sees Nathaniel at an impossible distance. Are you sure, Rick? No, but tell me why else Nathaniel would be blown away that Jesus saw him under the fig tree. Do you get excited because someone mentioned they saw you in the produce aisle at Safeway? You saw me there? Oh, glory be! You're a seer! A prophet! No. And that's what makes this story so interesting is all Jesus says is, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel goes, you're Messiah. It's an amazing story. Nathaniel knew that Jesus saw him when there was no way that Jesus could have seen him. Now, if you think I'm up a tree or out on a limb here, or if you think I've got this figured out all wrong, at least you've got to recognize something personal is going on that only Nathaniel, God, and Jesus could have known. F.F. Bruce says, with an allusion to something known only to Nathaniel and himself, Jesus let him understand. He knew more about him than he could possibly have conceived. And so Nathaniel cries out, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. But wait, it gets better. Jesus said, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. The fig tree. The fig tree, you Bible students know, in the Bible is prophetically very important. Important prophetically, it is a symbol of Israel throughout the Scriptures. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, God says, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. And that's one of a number of references through the Hebrew Scriptures where the Lord calls Israel or compares Israel to a fig tree. Which is why some of us get so excited about what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 32 when He tells the parable of the fig tree. He says, learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize He is near right at the door. When the branch of the fig tree begins to blossom and bud and put out its leaves and, and become tender. And if the fig tree is Israel, Israel is putting out its branches. It's becoming tender. Summer's here. 
Just as the fig tree in the Middle East shows that summer is near when it begins to branch out. By the way, interesting, with all of these attacks going on, the attack in Paris, there was a quote from a, from a guy this last week who said, I don't think there's a single Jew left in Paris. Where are they? They're going to Israel. And we continue to watch as Jewish people the world over are making their way to Israel. They're making Aliyah, which means to go up. They're going back up to Israel. God's calling His people home, gang. And on the world stage, we ought to be aware of that because it speaks to the age in which we live, the last of the last days. I don't say that to freak anybody out or scare anybody. I say that because that is good news. That means all the mess that we see getting worse and know, biblically, it's going to get worse still. Gang, it's close to getting cleaned up. Because Jesus is going to come back and do something. Anyway, the fig tree was prophetically important, is prophetically important. But, understand this, for the Jewish people, the fig tree was also very personally important. There's something of this in the history of the Jewish people that, again, a Hebrew would would understand the fig tree as a picture, a type, an example of a place of prayer and meditation, perhaps Bible study. And in the hot summers of the Middle East, you want a nice, big, leafy fig tree. And fig trees put out the leaves, gang. They can get very thick and very lush and provide a lot of shade. Great place to sit with your rabbi and, and learn something. Great place to go in the morning and pray and, and meditate and think about God. First Kings 4.25 says, Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Because the fig tree symbolized, and the vine, symbolized for the Jewish people peace and prosperity and the covering of God. But that symbol of peace and reflection... Gang, it extends right on into the millennial kingdom, the coming kingdom of Christ. Micah the prophet, chapter 4, verse 4, says, Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, with no one to make afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You're going to have a fig tree in the kingdom. I'm excited about that. I like fig newtons. This is a good thing. But the picture of that tree where I think you can sit under the tree and pray. And have the shade to take some time to be with the Lord. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 10. In that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and his fig tree and watch the Seahawks go to yet another victory. So, the fig tree, I added the last part. So the fig tree became a picture in Israel to the Jewish people, a colloquialism, if you will, of peaceful prayer, of meaningful meditation of rabbinical instruction. In our culture, especially church culture, among Christians, we might say, I'm going to go have my quiet time. And you wouldn't say, your quiet time? If Mitch said, Rick, I'm going to go get my quiet time right now, I wouldn't be like, what, your wife puts you in time out? What does that mean? I know what it means. He's going to go spend some time with the Lord. He's going to go pray. My quiet time. Some will use the phrase, the prayer closet. Which I think is an interesting phrase. Jake and I were talking about this on Friday. And Jake said, we got to get t-shirts that say, Taking back the closet. <laughs> he said it. I'm just telling you what he said. But we understand these things. And so for a Jew to say, I'm under the fig tree. I'm going to be out of the fig tree. I'm going to go spend some time under the fig tree. It would have a similar reaction. Oh, okay, cool. He's, he's going to have some quiet time with the Lord. What are you saying, Rick? You want to get God's attention? Give Him yours. What was it about Nathaniel under the fig tree that caught the attention of Jesus? I think it was, again, I'm guessing here, I think it was Nathaniel was under that fig tree, perhaps that morning, praying. Having his morning quiet time. Thinking about the Lord. And Jesus saw that. And the best way to get God to take notice of you is take notice of Him. You know how many times I've heard people say, well, God just has nothing to do with my life. Well, how much do you have to do with His? God doesn't know what's going on. Have you talked to Him about it? And have you really taken time just to sit down and, and, and be with Him? You want Him with you, but you don't want to be with Him. 
It's a two-way street. And the Lord always takes notice when people take notice of Him. So Nathaniel reacts in a way that indicates something more. Listen, something more than Jesus just seeing him under the tree. What's that? I think Jesus not only saw him supernaturally under that fig tree, but knew exactly what he was doing under that tree. And he wasn't smoking pot. He saw him under the fig tree. I know, that seems random, Lori Beth, but we live in a state where you can do that now. Where you drive by and you see the little green cross, and that's the pot store. It blows my mind. It blows my mind. Anyway. My point is this. He saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, not doing something weird or something wrong or something secretive. He saw him under the fig tree, I believe, studying Genesis. How in the world do you come to that? Look at verse 47 again. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said, Wait a minute, how do you know me? Why did Jesus say that about Nathanael? It's not just because Nathanael was a good guy. I believe Jesus said something right then that Nathanael heard and went, Wait, what? An Israelite... Let me make it more clear to you. Name for me an Israelite who was known for deceitfulness. Jake, are you pastor's namesake? (laughs) Jacob, Yaakov, heel catcher is what his name means. Jacob, who became Israel, the father of Israel, is a deceiver, was a deceiver. That was his M.O. most of his life. Okay, some more Old Testament story here. And this is where I believe Nathaniel was studying. Reading about Jacob. Genesis 24, which tells us when Jacob and Esau were born, Jacob grabbed hold in the womb of Esau's heel to try and pull him back so he could get out the womb first. This was how these brothers started life. I want to get out first! And he doesn't, and yet God still allows the younger to be blessed over the older. Genesis 24, that's why he's named Jacob, heel catcher, because he literally caught hold of his brother's heel to try and surpass him. He's a usurper. He's a crafty guy. He's a wily guy. Jacob not only caught Esau's heel, but he connived Esau out of his birthright in Genesis 25. You know, the story of Jacob and Esau is a fascinating one. Esau was a man's man. We've talked about this. His name means red and hairy. He was a hunter. You know, he would do very well in the Northwest. Jacob was a tent dweller. (laughs) Jacob probably knew how to make his way around an Afghan. You know, he knew how to stitch and sew. He was an indoor kind of a guy. But he was a conniver. And he was wily. He was sharp as a tack. Esau was a hunter. No offense to you hunters, but not as sharp as a bowling ball. <laughs> because he comes in and he's hungry. Oh, there's something to eat here. Give me some of that red stew. I will if you sell me your birthright. Oh, what's a birthright to me? I'm going to starve to death. Oh, give me. And he eats the stew. Jacob connives him out of his birthright that Esau doesn't have a clue how important it would be eventually. A little further along. One afternoon, Rebecca is outside of the tent and she hears old Isaac, Jacob and Esau's dad. Isaac is blind. He's in the tent and he says, Esau, my son, my son, go out and hunt for me. Get some food. Make it the way I like it. Come in here and I'll give you the blessing. So Esau goes out. Rebecca hears this, grabs Jacob. You've got to get that blessing. So here's what we're going to do. I will fix up the food, you know, some savory meat the way your father likes it. You take it into him. He's blind. He's not going to know the difference. And you get the blessing. And Jacob's like, Mom. Mom, he's going to know. My voice. He's going to give me... And my, my skin. I'm smooth. He was smooth. If dad touches my arm, he'll know. It's brilliant. So they take goat skin, wrap it around his arms, send him in with food that Rebecca made. And Isaac goes, oh, you saw you're here. Yeah, dad. I mean, yeah, dad. I'm here. 
Isaac says, doesn't sound like Esau. <laughs> Reaches out and grabs hold of the goat hair on his arm. He goes, oh, well, that feels like Esau. <laughs> Eats the food, gives Jacob the blessing. Jacob goes out, having now stolen both the birthright and the blessing, both big deals in Israel. Esau comes in, lugging his food. Got it, Dad. Genesis 27, verse 35. Isaac says, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And he said, have you reserved a blessing for me, dad? And Isaac's like, I got none to give. Your brother got it. That word deceit, behold, he says, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit is dolus in the Greek. That same word dolus, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that's the word used to describe Jacob in Genesis 27 when he's called deceitful. Dolus. Jacob is the deceiver. So what are you saying with all that? I think that's what Nathaniel was studying under the fig tree that morning. So he comes walking along now. He sees Jesus and Jesus says, Oh, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel goes, Excuse me? Having just studied about the father of Israel, the deceiver. Well, that's a coincidence. No, you can't mean anything, Right? And then Jesus says, well, I saw you under the fig tree this morning. And Nathanael put one and one together and got two. He did mean, he does know what I was doing. He is aware of all this. It's amazing. Look at verse 48 going on. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus said before, Philip called you. You were under the fig tree. I saw you. And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you you, that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Whoa, wait a minute. Who saw that? Jacob did. Jacob saw that. Genesis 28, verse 12. Jacob, Yaakov, had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set to the earth with his top reaching to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus is talking about that story. Why? I think Nathaniel was studying that story. And Jesus is calling all this out. And Nathaniel is just going, this is the king of heaven. This is the son of God. Did you notice that Jesus misquoted that? He said, truly I say to you, you'll see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jacob's dream, it was a ladder. Jacob's ladder. Jesus is saying right here, right at their first meeting to Nathaniel, Hey Nat, I'm the ladder. What you are studying this morning is all about me. I'm the guy. What a brilliant Lord we have. Because he saw Nathaniel, and in seeing Nathaniel, went straight to the place that Nathaniel was. Met him where he was, touched his heart right where his heart was, talked to him about the things Nathaniel was dealing with, thinking through, processing in that moment. And you put it all together, it's just marvelous. And Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, unlike Jacob. Sees him under the fig tree. Only God could have seen him. And taps into Nathaniel's heart and mind. And sometimes I'm asked the question, Rick, how did you know what was going on in my life this week? I don't even know what's going on in my life this week. I have no idea. Not a clue. But Jesus knows. And He sees you. He speaks things to you when we're studying the Bible that I'm not saying. I don't know that He's doing. Because He sees you in a way that I couldn't possibly. He's the God who really sees. Sees where you are, what you're facing, what you're dealing with. And that's what I think Nathaniel starts to pick up to realize that he is seeing 
God face to face. He's looking eye to eye with Messiah. There's an interesting Hebrew phrase for the man who sees God. The man who sees God, that sentence in Hebrew is Ishro Achel. Ishro Achel. Israel. Israel. Now that's not the etymology of the name Israel. The name Israel is actually uh, Israel comes from governed by God. It comes from partially Sarah's name, princess. It's actually in the masculine prince, prince of God, governed by God. But Israel means the man who sees God. And Nathaniel saw God in Jesus, but please don't miss this. Jesus saw him first. And that's why Nathaniel saw Jesus. That's how it works. He sees you first. He saw me when I was a dumb kid. And I was a dumb kid. And He saw me. And because He saw me, I saw Him. He's aware of you. He's got His eye on you. He sees you under the fig tree. Listen, you devoted followers of Jesus Christ, you, you Christians, don't forget your time under the fig tree. Don't set it aside as unnecessary because you've got more important things to do. Prayer, devotion, time in the Word. Listen, Psalm 34.15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are open to their cry. He is looking at you. He's listening for you. He's waiting for that time to be spent with you. Jesus says in Matthew 6.6, When you pray, go into your inner room, Jake, your prayer closet, close your door, And pray to your Father who is in secret. And listen, your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Don't ignore the fig tree. But what about those among us who are maybe distracted or doubting or disbelieving? Listen, Jesus sees you. He's got His eye on you. He sees what you're doing. I shied away from saying things like that a long time ago because it just sounded so, you know, he's watching me. He's just waiting for me to mess it up. Listen, Psalm 14, verse 2, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Why is God looking at the disbeliever? He's waiting to see. Are you going to choose me? I'm watching. I'm here. I'm aware of you. Will you turn around and look at me? Ezekiel 34 verse 16. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the scattered. I will bind up the broken. I will strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. I was out on Friday night with my brother. We went to see the final Hobbit. Just all right. And uh, Ron cracks me up because he remembers everything. I mean, he's got a mind like a steel trap. I've got a mind like a steel trap too, but in my case, everything comes out mangled. In his case, he just remembers stuff. And he can probably quote every single Looney Tunes line ever spoken by Bugs Bunny. It's remarkable. We're driving along in the car, and this is the line. You guys, it may not be funny to you, but we, we said it all through our childhood to each other. Driving along, uh, and Ron said, you remember the scene where, you know, they're in the theater, and then, and, and it's, uh, not Elmer Fudd, who's the guy with the long, uh, Yosemite Sam is in there, and, and he's telling this person down in the, in the cartoon, person in the theater, take your hat off, lady, I can't see the screen. That's you, fathead! That's what he says. So that's what Ron and I would say to each other growing up. Hey, Rick, can you sit down? I can't see the TV. That's you, fathead! What's the point of that? I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. It was funny. No, this is. listen what's, what the Lord says. He says, to the fat and the strong come judgment. Who are the fat and the strong? Well, that's you, fathead! Who's he talking about? He's talking about those who think they have the power, the strength, and the ability to climb Jacob's ladder. When Jesus says, no, I'm the ladder. You're not getting to heaven on your own. You're not strong enough. You're not muscular enough. You are not Esau enough. That's flesh thinking. 
And that's why the Lord says that. I'm going to feed them with judgment because you're relying on your own strength, on your own ability. Jesus says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Which is the weak, the confused, the hurt, the wounded, the discouraged. Like every single one of us in this room have been in our lives at one time or another. And Jesus comes and Jesus sees you. Again, unbeliever, listen to me. Jesus sees you not looking to pounce on you. He's not frowning in condescension. You know what? Jesus condescended to come out of Nazareth. Jesus condescended to put on human flesh. Jesus condescended to be stretched out on the cross. The only ladder to heaven. There's a wonderful old hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I mean, it would take my stand. It says, as to the holy patriarch, the wondrous dream was given. So seems my Savior's cross to be a ladder up to heaven. John 8, 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know I am. Why? Because in the cross we see the true intentions of Jesus. We see Jesus after He has already seen us. See, He saw us in our lostness. And He went to the cross saying, Now if you will look at me, see me here, dying for you, you can be saved. F.F. Bruce says, By the cross, heaven is thrown wide open. God draws near to man, and man is reconciled to God. Jesus sees you. Do you see Him? One last thing here. Look at verse 50. He's talking to Nathaniel. He says, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Now the implication is, Nathaniel had just seen a great thing. Something amazing had just happened. But Jesus says, Oh, Nathaniel, you ain't seen nothing yet. Verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you... Wait a minute, i got to tell you this. Truly, truly there? John is the only Gospel writer who quotes Jesus saying this. And it is the word, Amen. Amen. Amen, Amen, he says. It is transliterated into every known language on the planet. What does that mean? It means there's not another word for Amen in Chinese. It's Amen. There's not another word for Amen in, I don't know, Taiwanese. It is Amen. Pick a language, the word amen is just amen. Across the board, there's only one other word like that, hallelujah. But in this case, throughout the Gospel of John, you're going to hear 25 different times, Jesus will say, amen. You'll see it translated, truly, truly, or some Bibles, verily, verily. When Jesus says amen, He is saying, you can bank on this. Amen. This will be. So it is to be, is what he's saying. So he says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will. Who are we talking about here? Who will see? Listen, verse 50 is for Nathaniel. Greater things than these, Nathaniel. Are you going to see? Because the you in verse 50, we can't see this in our English, but the you is in the singular form. In verse 51, when Jesus says, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, the you is the plural form. He's talking, gang, to everybody. He is tapping into that marvelous prophecy. Matthew 24.30, Mark 13.26, Luke 21.27, where He says they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. They will see. Who is they? Everyone who sees Him now. Everyone who declares Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. You're going to see Him in that day. Along with everyone who does not. Matthew 24.30 The sign of the Son of Man, Jesus said, will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Everybody's going to see Him. 
question is, will you see Him now? He sees you. He sees me. The day is coming when every eye will see Jesus. And your vantage point, your perspective, your viewpoint on that day will depend on whether you choose to turn around and see Jesus today. Father, fill this room with your Spirit. Draw us out of our seats, Lord. Bring us forward. Not not so we can have a bunch of people up here, but so that lives can truly come to you. That's what this is about. Help us to see you, Lord. Help those who have walked with you for years to see you clearly. Help me, Lord, to see you. And I pray, Father, that if there's anybody here who has yet to make a declaration of faith in Jesus, they would see their way clear to making it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on forward while we sing.